Well, you know, in the end, no one ever really changes. I don't know if you've ever heard that said or had that said to you about someone. I'm, I'm uncomfortable with that saying, and quite, quite thankfully, when you look at this story, this passage that was read, and when it comes to God, the story proves that that saying is completely untrue. If you've been following the story of Daniel in the last few weeks here at the lunchtime service, there is only one character. One character has featured in all four chapters. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian Empire. And we've been shown through the book of Daniel that his awareness of God has become slowly uh, more of a reality to him. Through the exchanges of God's own exiled people, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And as we come to the climax of this character's journey, Nebuchadnezzar is not just the main focus, he's narrating it as well. The ruler of the greatest world power of that time gives us his own dramatic testimony a wicked and oppressive king's transformation. He would be a great candidate as a guest speaker for a London men's convention. But what's more important than what King Nebuchadnezzar has learned about himself is what he's learned about God, which is that the Most High God rules, not just in heaven, but has absolute control and sovereignty over all the kingdoms that mankind is seemingly in charge of. That's the lesson King Nebuchadnezzar, after all those chapters, those encounters Daniel and his friends has finally learned. Heaven rules. Now, if I was going to uh, interpret the first few verses of this chapter, chapter 4, visually, uh, I, I couldn't help use the classic film addictive TV drama tool, which is consistently done because it works so well. And, and that would be that the character, King Nebuchadnezzar, walks out on his long balcony, addressing thousands of people below him, great ziggurats surrounding him, triumphal soundtrack music in the background, actor's voiceover of the king's surfaces, probably Anthony Hopkins because he does it really well, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, and then the screen goes black with a text that says something like, sometime before, eight years earlier, or something like that. And the next shot is the king shuffling back and forth in his bed, sweating, to then suddenly waking up, petrified yet again to a troubling dream. That would be my visual. That's, that's your Paramount Pictures agency. That's, that's my pitch to you. But that's how the chapter sets the story up for us, to then go back in time. Verses 4 to 27, this troubling dream is described and then interpreted. The image of a mighty, enormous tree beautifully flourishing with all kinds of creatures feeding from it is suddenly ordered to be ripped apart and chopped down. The stump and roots are allowed to remain, but it is to be bound up by iron and bronze. The tree turns out to represent the king in all his prosperity and glory. But everything he has built and achieved will be taken from him. Verse 15 says, Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. What's then revealed in verse 25 is that the stump and the roots remain, which means that his kingdom, all his prosperity, 
will be restored to him after seven times past period when he finally acknowledges that the Most High is sovereign. And just to say that the seven times past does not necessarily mean seven years. Um, all this is interpreted by Daniel, who then, even though he wasn't asked to, he gives the king advice in verse 27. Look, your majesty, this is going to happen to you. Repent. Stop all your wickedness. And maybe it won't. Daniel has the gut to say that. Now, we have no idea what the king's reaction was to that. But we do know in the next few verses that it happens. And that Nebuchadnezzar is given 12 months. 12 months in order to repent. That's a fair bit of time to change direction in your life if you've been warned to. But verse 30 shows us that there has been no change in his character. He says, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And while saying this, by the command of a heavenly voice, he drops from the height of thinking he was pretty much a god to having the mindset of and living like an animal physically change, nails growing, hair grows all over the place, and his preferred meal is no longer a medium-rare cooked steak of the game caught that day, but grass. And he's driven away, living amongst the animals. Nebuchadnezzar is made in the image of God. The fact that God is graciously, he gives him so much time for him to repent, is a good indicator that God takes no joy in making a precious creation made in his image become something of an animal in mind and behavior. It would not be right to get from this passage that God delights in humiliation for his creation. But we need to be clear that from this story and from God's word as a whole, that God desires humility from us. Whoever we are, whatever our circumstances and position in this world, we may be placed in. And he will go to the length of humiliating us if necessary. If it means through that process of humiliation, we develop real humility. You've probably heard of really prominent Christian leaders who, because of some sex or greed scandal, are exposed and humiliated. In fact, if God does expose us like that, this as Christians, because of our sin and pride, it needs to be seen as a mercy to us. The worst thing that could happen is for us to be left in our pride and self-delusions. God is able to go to extreme measures to humble us to the point of humiliation, and he will do it, but it's clear that he would rather we humble ourselves. Up till now, uh, chapters 2 and 3, Nebuchadnezzar already knows and believes the God of Daniel and his friends exists. In heaven, of course, that's his place. That's, that's fine, you stay there. That's what you're there for. We need someone up there to take control of that realm. You're a god, of course. But you leave this dominion, my dominion, that I've built to me. So King Nebuchadnezzar stays in this animal state until he learns the main lesson that God has wanted to teach him all this time. Through this nightmare that he's lived, He finally raises his head and says, heaven rules everything. He says in verse 35, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. 
He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? He realizes that God's kingdom is rooted in this planet among all the dominions of planet Earth, and that actually all this time he has been competing with another kingdom far, far beyond him. He, he didn't take the pretty obvious hint in chapter 2 with the first dream when the rock hit the foundation of the statue, but now he finally gets it. Now, this would have been massively encouraging to the original readers, exiled and post-exilic Jews, who their God is and the great assurance they can have in his sovereignty. 34, verse 34, his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. That's a comfort for us as a church as well. Now, going back, have a quick look at verse 27 of chapter 4, where Daniel gives uh, daringly advice to King Nebuchadnezzar after the interpretation. He says, renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. One of the results for Nebuchadnezzar is not recognizing that heaven rules everything on earth, is that his kingdom has been about oppression and wickedness. A a huge implication of this passage for us is that nations are accountable to a sovereign God, and how they behave is not separate from God's rule. How we treat each other and use the power and responsibility we hold matters to God. It's frightening when you look back at history, the behaviors of empires and nations, and you could say the same when you look at the current state and trajectory of our culture and the world today. When we lose any sense that we are accountable to something far greater than us, the difference that has in our society, I mean, some people are put into huge responsibilities in the world, especially in government. What gets decided in policies and laws not only affects the nation, but also the world. But that truth filters down further. It applies to our work, running a company, perhaps. You know, if you're responsible for an organization, how does this truth, heaven rules, affect the way things are done for the whole organization? how people are treated and managed in our workplace under our care, there is still an accountability there. And when it comes to vocational stewardship and evangelism, it's great to have a passion for change and transformation in your workplace, bringing the gospel to individuals and a gospel worldview in the specific culture that you're part of. But because heaven rules, never go into it thinking that you're bringing God into your workplace. He's always been there. It belongs to him. He's already in charge of it. God is not restricted to Sundays or in-house and outreach church activities. All things belong to him. So Nebuchadnezzar's final words in verse 36 to 37, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He's reflecting on himself first and then to anyone else who will listen. It's at this point, this point, he realizes that true, true sanity is acknowledging that God is supreme over all. And to go against what God requires, how he should live and treat those under him, and thinking of himself more than what he is, was actually true madness. That's his epiphany. 
Humbling the proud is something God still does today. He requires it, but he'd rather we humble ourselves first. Okay, you've probably gathered by now that the big thrust of this point is, oh no, if I'm like Nebuchadnezzar, I need to humble myself or I'm going to get mullered. And there's some truth in that. But we don't have to have this extreme self-exalting attitude to ignore that heaven rules on earth and in every area of our life. You may be more self-rejecting, prone to self-pity, but that self-focus just turns in a different direction. Looking down on oneself often is a form of pride. Or what about, well, at least I'm not like them, or that group of people. Or Dave needs to hear this point. Um, I remember a Tim Keller quote uh, when he said, do you look down on people, do you look down on people who look down on people? (laughs) That hit me really hard, really hard. Thomas Merton, the Puritan, wrote that true humility is being precisely the person you actually are before God. That we are more evil than we think, but more loved than we can ever imagine. And at the heart, humility is trusting God with who you really are, not trusting in ourselves and thinking we're something that we're not. Why does God sometimes go to extreme to humble us, to the point of humiliation? Not just so we acknowledge him, but also so we trust him. And we can't truly do it unless we see Jesus Christ. The real main character of this story is not Nebuchadnezzar, but God. Throughout all the chapters. The same God that worked in Nebuchadnezzar's life is the one who years later came down from his rule in heaven to earth. He, Jesus Christ, made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2, verse 7 to 8. Nebuchadnezzar, full of wickedness, was forcibly humbled and humiliated to be then restored. Jesus Christ, fully perfect, voluntarily humbled himself to the point of being humiliated, being spat at, abused by those he created, and abandoned by those who were his friends as well as being humiliated in the way he died. For the purpose that we could be ultimately and truly restored ourselves back in relationship with God. Which means when I look in the mirror, I see nothing good in me except Christ. That's why we can trust God with who we are, because of what he's done for us. That's our steam towards humbling ourselves. And Really, to what degree we look at Christ will affect the steps we take in our own repentance of pride in our lives. Whatever responsibility we hold, both in work and in our families, the, the truth that heaven rules, that God is involved in what we do, in the big picture, it's a huge in- encouragement and comfort especially when we're left with confusion about what's going on around us on a national scale or even in our workplace. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. I think, I think that's a great, great verse to meditate on. Let's pray. Father, forgive us when we lose sight of your full rule in what you give us and where you place us. 
And we ask by your spirit that you continue to humble us as well as give us comfort and help us to trust in your sovereignty uh, in our lives. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.